0: Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, that's page 811, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat rack in front of you. And we noted last week as we began the series on the Lord's Prayer that Christ's prayer life was so compelling that the disciples at one point say to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now that's not because they had never prayed before had no idea or understanding about prayer but for them as ordinary jewish men prayer kind of fell along certain lines and they used certain even texts out of the old testament and prayed at certain times of the day but there was something about both the way jesus prayed and even when he prayed and how he interacted with his heavenly father and theirs that compelled them to say we need a lesson We don't even know how to pray when we compare our prayer lives to His. And I know some of you feel deeply frustrated by your prayer life. You want to pray richer, deeper, longer, more substantially. You want to see greater answers to prayer than what you've experienced at this point. And and that's a good thing. You're in good company. And so we began to look last week at how the Lord, before He gets to what we formally call the Lord's Prayer, began to compare and contrast and say, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. They just pray to be seen. So we check that off. and like, okay, don't pray to be seen. And then he points to the non-believers. He calls them Gentiles here, but he's using that in a, in a spiritual sense. The non-believers think that they'll be heard because they just pile up empty phrases. And then he says, but when you pray, First of all, know that you're praying to a, a father who, though he is in secret, you can't see him with your eyes. He sees you, and he hears and knows all things. He actually knows what you need before you even ask. So Jesus points us to this particular relationship. Well, the, the followers of Jesus got a hold of this. You say, how do you know that? Well, it's not because their prayers are recorded in the Gospels, per se, but Luke, who wrote one of the four Gospels and who I remember is a medical doctor, so we sometimes call him Dr. Luke. He also wrote a second book in the New Testament titled The Acts of the Apostles. And when you begin to read through Acts, you see this same group, and more have been added to it, who are characterized by devoted prayer. And that little term is repeated, devoting, devoted, devote. Acts 1.14, they're waiting as God, as, as the Lord Jesus had told them. Uh, just prior to his ascension, you wait in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, uh, you, you will know something extraordinary. And so they are gathering in chapter 1, and verse 14 records for us, these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then chapter 2 tells us, the Holy Spirit came according to promise. We call it Pentecost, but what an outpouring it was. And the Lord really did ignite his church, They are sharing the gospel and evangelizing. Thousands of people are being converted. And you come to the end of chapter 2 and you read again. And they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers and you continue to read, and you see how the church is growing, and you come to chapter 6 where there's actually a little bit of internal strife and conflict, and, and some of the, the Gentile widows are being neglected, and the, some even think there's a conspiracy behind it, and the apostles you know, call a meeting and say, hold on a minute, no conspiracy here. We have an organizational problem, an administration challenge. But then they, they actually say in Acts 6, after calling the church to select men, spirit-filled men from among them to, who can do this work, the apostles turn around and say in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they caught it. And there should be no doubt in our minds that the progress of the gospel message through the ages, and the growth of the church and the world has been tied and is tied directly to the devoted prayer of individuals and assemblies like ours. It's part of the reason we're taking time this month to emphasize it in a a special way. It's part of the reason that in equip class, we're going to spend a good portion of that time this morning Praying together. It's where we were Wednesday night for our praise and prayer time. And we're going to be there at some strategic points all through the month of January because we believe, as these first disciples did, that prayer really is a gift of God. And it moves the hand of God as he establishes his dominion. I wonder, though, how many of us have a habit of of any kind or a practice of prayer that we would or could be described as devoted Think about that for a moment. It's easy to rely on others or just assume, well, you know, I'm sure our pastors pray. We do, not perfectly. Well, my parents pray, probably. Oh, you know, my grandfather, is just he is a mighty man of faith. He prays. Okay, that's, we're happy for him, but what about you? Do you see the, the need and the necessity of it? This kind of devotion and prayer is not simply a matter of of raw discipline. We know that in part because if that had been the point, Jesus would have probably only spoken one word, maybe two. In answer to, Lord, teach us to pray, if it were just a matter of discipline, he might have turned around and said, just pray. Just do it. But no, he begins, doesn't he? And this is where we were last week, and we're going to spend a little time even this morning, first of all, telling us about the who of our prayers. Who are we praying to? And then he's going to move into not even the how of prayer, but he's more focused on the what. What are we praying for? To what end are we praying? And those are the critical things for us. So as we begin this morning, look at verse 9. I want to begin reading here and just two verses for our attention this morning. But as the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, pray then like this, look at where he begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed. Be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're looking this morning at the king that we're praying to and the kingdom of this king that we are seeking. That would be like a one just little succinct thought. That I, that I believe is packed into these two verses. Notice, first of all, we pray to a father who is king. He's not just the seeing, knowing uh, father that we were looking at last week, but he's king. A little side note, real quickly, don't you love the fact that Jesus says our father? It reminds us that we share him. We really are a family. I, I even appreciated the way Randy led us in prayer at the outset after he included a portion of a psalm. I'm assuming, was that a psalm that you used at the outset? Do you remember the number? Psalm 28. Always great to pray scripture back to God, right? But then did you hear the shift? The psalm itself is written in the first person. I, and I can't remember if there was a me or mine in there at all, but it was first person. But then as Randy was leading us in prayer, he broadened it and used terms like we and our and us. And that's good and right, especially in a setting like this. You may have been in one of those prayer meetings or even a gathering where it's almost a little uncomfortable that you suddenly feel like you interrupted a very personal conversation between one person and the Lord. That's not wrong. It's just in an assembly like this, the plurals are important, and Jesus even uses one here, our Father. But notice he says, secondly, in heaven, in heaven. Heaven is not simply a reference to the the realm above this world, the next world as we sometimes refer to it, It's not even simply the realm where God makes his dwelling, although that is true, but in this context, it has reference to God himself as the transcendent, sovereign, majestic power that he is and that he administers, or we could even say wields, for heaven is the location of his throne. We read Psalm 47. At the outset of the service, and let me take you back to verse 8. God is the one the psalmist describes as reigning over the nations. And then Psalm 47, 8 says, God sits on his holy throne. And that throne is at the center of heaven. It doesn't lie at the outskirts. It's not kind of on the edge or tucked out of the way. But heaven itself is constructed. You can read Revelation and see this. But heaven itself seems to be constructed around the throne." And all activity centers on that throne. And the majestic one who sits upon that throne is the father to whom we are praying. Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in Daniel 4. Matt touched on this. But if you have not read that story, you should. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king in the world at that particular moment in history. Wealthy, beyond imagination. Able and wise. I mean, the construction projects alone that he undertook are remarkable. Militarily, I mean, just mighty. Unconquerable, seemingly. And his pride swelled to the point and then God struck him with a kind of insanity. And he actually left the palace and lived in the open fields like an animal for seven years, I think it was. And at the end of that season, God restored his sanity, and not just that he could re-enter the life he had left and, and assume the responsibilities of a monarch of great power again, but he came back to his senses with humility, and that's what's captured in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. So when we read him saying, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, those weren't things that characterized Nebuchadnezzar prior to his insanity. And, you know, that doesn't characterize some of you this morning. You think it is irrational or unreasonable to praise and honor and worship a king you can't see. It's actually the most compellingly logical choice when you consider the universe you're a part of and how small and insignificant and powerless you really are. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, that is the king of heaven, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, we often ask that question, don't we? Don't we? I mean, I would say I'm wrestling with some things right now, like, Lord, what is this? What have you done? What are you doing? But this God is in the heavens. I'm not. This God is seated on the throne, and you're not. This God has a word so powerful that all he has to do is say, let there be light. And the miracle of light appears in the universe of his making. I'm just happy if a a wall switch obeys my sovereign will and when I flip it up, light comes on. You ever hit a wall switch where you're like, and nothing happens? And then you think if if you flip it harder, maybe that will work. If you pound on the wall beside it, Sometimes you even invoke curses on the electrical grid. Those curses amount to nothing because you're not king. This is the great king, and he is our father. I love the words of the 18th century pastor and hymn writer John Newton. He wrote the, probably the world's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote hundreds more. There's one, we don't, we don't sing it, and I even explored this week to see if we could find a tune, and there is kind of an older tune, but it would be, it, it, it's just, it's out of, it's out of date. You know, like, kind of like my grandpa's suits, who is with Jesus now, so. you know, I remember as a kid, though, thinking, Grandpa, you should dress differently. But these words are not out of date. Newton wrote in the second stanza of his hymn, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. He's not talking about the suit, my grandpa's suit. He's talking about make your case. But in the second stanza, he writes, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Is there something on your heart today that seems like too much? Maybe you're reluctant to offer it to the king. Maybe because you you say, I have faith, but I'm afraid. I'll be disappointed if I ask for this thing that, that God would not give it. I'm afraid if I offered a prayer, he would not hear me. I'm afraid maybe my sin has made too much of a a mess of my life, and, and God would rather just say, you know, you made this mess, you clean it up, and then we'll talk. There are all kinds of reasons that we fail to offer our request, but, beloved, one thing Jesus wants us to know and is showing us and is teaching us clearly, you are praying to your Father, and your Father is King of the universe. Is he your King? Is he your Father? Well, look again at the text with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How important is your name to you? Perhaps you were named after a family member or friend who meant a great deal to your parents. Perhaps your name carries a special meaning. No one here is named Sally, so I can use it safely, I I think, unless some of our guests are. But you were named Sally because your mother thought of you as a princess. Did you know that's what the name Sally means? Perhaps your mom and dad just thought the name sounded cool or strong. There's no you know, inherent, let alone biblical meaning wrapped up into it, but it's unlikely that that name was chosen randomly or arbitrarily. You know, Utah is developing a reputation for impressive, if not crazy, alternative spellings for names. Is that where some of your minds were going right now? Yeah, that's where my mind went too. So to take a little diversion, I just I googled that and, and stumbled on an article that was published a couple of years ago that tells about how a, uh, a Utah mom in 2018, Allison Sarnecki, that's a good name, isn't it, tweeted a series of uniquely Utah names that she mined from her son's junior high school yearbook. I mean, it's not even like she had to search far and wide, but, but look, at, look at some of these names and the spellings. Presley, Madeline, which, not to be confused with the musical instrument, mandolin, (laughs) Colton at Atalee? Atalee? See? I mean, how are we supposed to know? I mean, just read through that list, and I think, oh, parents, stop doing this to your kids. Stop doing this to your teachers. Kristen is a substitute teacher periodically, and she comes home sometimes like, hey, you won't believe in the spelling of this particular name. So, you know, I mean, names are important. You know, spell them however you want. But I dare say that they're significant when we choose them. And, you know, God's name is really important to him. And we are praying for God's name to be honored. Do you know why that is? First of all, God's name represents the sum total of all that he is. That's why there's not just one name. Now, there's one special name that he has revealed himself by, but there are hundreds of names and titles in the Bible where God reveals himself to us. He didn't choose these names just because he thought they sound cool or he wanted to monkey with the spelling a little bit and kind of you know, intrigue or challenge us as to how we're going to pronounce them. But you encounter all kinds of names and titles. The, the simple Hebrew name El- refers to God as the Mighty One. And when you couple that with El Shaddai, you find that he is revealing himself as God Almighty. El-Ohim, God in the fullness of his power. Yon, Most High. Adonai, God as Master or Lord. And then the special name that in Old English we pronounce Jehovah, it's been modernized, and I think rightfully so to Yahweh. That's the, the Great I Am, the self-existent covenant-keeping God, the one who did not have a beginning, who has no end. He doesn't draw power or resources or energy from any other source, but in him is life. And then he ties that special name to some other significant revelatory names or titles. He's Lord of hosts, Lord of heavenly armies. He's Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. He's the Lord, our provider, the Lord, our banner, the Lord, our healer, the Lord, our peace. All of these things are precious to us because he's revealing his very nature and character. And one of those that is probably most precious to those of you who've known him and walked with him is the Lord, our shepherd, We need him to be all of these things. So when Jesus prays in John 17, 6, saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, he's indicating that he has faithfully revealed the nature, the character, the person of God the Father to the disciples. He's shown them in his flesh who God truly is. And our prayers run right along behind The incarnation, if you will, to say, Oh, Lord God, make your name great in our day in the way Jesus made your name great through his life and death and resurrection. The word hallow simply means to reverence, to honor or glorify, but specifically to to reverence, honor and glorify him as he truly is. And we pray for this to happen. It doesn't mean, although this would be a, a very narrow application, Lord, let people stop taking your name in vain. Lord, don't let your name be a curse word or an oath any longer. We, we should long for that. And even as I was studying this week, I thought, you know, my, my ears are, are becoming a little tone deaf to the cultural use of God's name in vain. That's a grief that I'm not more grieved. I leave that for you to think of, but More than this, I want you to see the kingdom focus of this prayer. Think of some of the current ideas about God. From the atheists who believe there is no God, through the agnostic who's uncertain whether there is a God who can be known, you have very religious committed groups like the Hindus who actually believe there are thousands of gods, the Buddhist who believes there are supernatural beings but not really any gods in the formal sense, the Muslim believes in a God, but he's a very different God from the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament as, as, as Jesus has revealed him. And even in our context, the prevailing religion in Utah teaches that God was once a man as we now are, but through long eons of progression left his humanity behind and entered the realm of the divine. Now, my friends, all of these are are probably well-intentioned. And for many, they would think it's rational, it makes sense to me, and as I've processed all this, sure, sure. But with reference to this God that we are praying to, our Father who's king, those are wholly inadequate and inaccurate. And so we're praying that God's name would be hallowed. And in part, that means we are praying that he would be known for who he truly is. We're praying for the truth about God to be known and believed and embraced. So our prayers for God's name to be hallowed certainly should express a personal submission to him as he is. But they also are kingdom focused where we're saying, Oh Lord, don't let it stop with me. Let my family, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, even the stranger that I sit next to on the, on the business trip across country on Tuesday, let them hallow your name. This doesn't sit well in our pluralistic culture right now. And, and I pray God will allow me now and allow us as followers of Jesus to say it with genuine love and sincerity. But beloved, we, we are not called to accommodate the plurality of worldviews, especially concerning the true nature and identity of God, And, and we not only evangelize those who do not follow Jesus, but we pray in this way that God's true character and nature would be known, that Muslim nations of the world would come to know that El Shaddai is great, it's not Allah. We pray that the Buddhist monk will come to know that Yahweh Shalom is his peace, not a state of mind that he could reach through some form of his meditation. We pray that the materialistic Americans uh, that live and work and do school and sports all around us would come to know that, that Jehovah Jireh is both the eternal provider and the eternal provision himself. It's not the government. It's not the 401k. It's not the big salary I can pull down. It's not the union I'm a part of. This God in heaven must be the personal life and security of my soul. And we pray that our dear religious friends in Utah would come to understand that Jesus Christ is the eternal I am, the God who has no beginning and no end. He's not one of millions of spirit children conceived of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother sometime back in the, in the premortal existence. We want them to hallow God's name. It's hard to pray that if you don't know him. It's hard to find your prayer life exhilarated by this truth if it's not intensely personal for you. This is the day that some of you need to lay down your pride of intellect, lay down your resistance to God's truth as he has graciously and tenaciously spoken it into your soul over a period of time and say, Lord God, for the first time in my life, I will hallow your name by my repentance and faith. We pray for the honor of the Father's name. Look at the next phrase. We pray for the establishment of the Father's rule. We were singing it earlier in the service. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how verse 10 reads. Now, generally, broadly speaking, you could understand God's kingdom simply as his sovereign rule over all things. And so there's a present aspect of it. He is king. The, The psalm we read earlier. He sits on his throne right now. We're not waiting for him to take the throne, for somebody to give it to him. He's there right now. But part of this prayer does, in fact, have a future eternal kingdom in view. And this is what we get so excited about, leaving this world, this life behind and entering into eternity, the presence of God, where we will see him in his glory. We will be transformed and made like the Lord Jesus Christ. We will live in a real place called heaven walk on streets of gold be healed by the leaves of those trees that line the river uh, that makes the city of god so glad all of those things are described for us throughout the scriptures probably none with more clarity than revelation and in revelation 11 verse 5 we read that the seventh angel this is in the last days of of human history There there are seven angels who blow trumpets, signaling all kinds of things. The seventh angel who blows his trumpet, here's what unfolds. John writes, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we all go, oh, even so come Lord Jesus. We want to be there. We want to be in that moment, in that place, in that presence. So there's a future sense in this prayer. And we were singing it earlier, not just let your kingdom come, but we were affirming the truth of the scripture. You are king forever, king forever, king forevermore. But don't lose this. Don't lose sight of the fact that we are also praying uh, for something right now. And God's present dominion is the longing of our hearts. And so when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's not primarily about a future time. We're actually praying that God's will will be performed right now. Now think with me for a moment. How, how is God's will performed in heaven? Let your mind kind of go back to passages like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is transported into the presence of this high and lifted up God and he, he, he sees uh, creatures unlike he's ever seen before who hover around the throne and they sing w- without interruption, holy, holy, holy. And he describes these creatures as each having six wings. And one set of those wings seems to be uh, designed by God to make them able to carry out his will the instant he speaks it. And we might begin to look at a scene like this and say, well, there's certainly great joy. There's great awe and humility because even those creatures hide their faces and and cover their feet in the presence of this glorious God. There's unceasing attention, whether it be Isaiah 6 or a passage like Revelation 4 that says, day and night they cry, holy, holy, holy. There's complete obedience. That's recorded all through the scriptures. Those are some of the things that begin to emerge when you consider how God's will is done in heaven. And then you see Christ himself as the God-man living out his life in complete obedience. That that almost seems like a contradiction to us, doesn't it? When Jesus says in places like John 5, verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. We pause and kind of go, but you're the son of God. Like, what? Like, what is it that you don't know? What is it that you have to wait for the Father to communicate to you before you do it? But what we see is a functional subordination. Jesus is as glorious as God the Father. There's no lesser divinity in him. He is equal to God the Father in in every way, but there's a functional subordination where he places himself under the authority of this great God. Or John 6, 38, where he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So he's not only teaching us to pray, let your will be done on earth as as it's done in heaven, but he's showing us how that works. That's the way the true servants of God live and pray. Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So there's a present reality of this kingdom. And then you think, even in terms of uh, back to Matthew 6. Well, that comes between Matthew 5 and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And, and there's actually a kingdom message that John the Baptist first began to preach and then Jesus picks it up. And what's the kingdom message? Repent in belief. And then there's a kingdom ethic that follows, and Jesus captures this in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is very serious about the commands to love one another. He's very serious about walking in humility, of being people of generosity and kindness, of forgiveness and reconciliation. Why? Because those are aspects of kingdom ethic. And when Jesus really is king of your heart, he begins to transform your personal ethic. And then there's a kingdom priority. You come to the end of this very chapter and you hear Jesus first so sweetly saying, don't be anxious about your life, what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna wear, you know, the house you're gonna live in. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, if he just cut it off at that first point, we might think that all we need to do is just keep waiting for heaven waiting for that future kingdom. Now, there's a present aspect of his dominion that he wants us to embrace by faith and live out in day-to-day life. And this is what Jesus is calling us to pray through. I love the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, written by Paul Tripp. I've shared this with you before, but it was gripping when I first read it. It's gripping and convicting each time I go back to it. Tripp, as he just wisely and so often succinctly can can nail it, says if we were honest, we would have to confess that the central prayer of our hearts is my kingdom come. And that shows up every day. Sometimes it shows up in just a, a rebellious spirit where we just see something straight up in the word we're like, nope, not doing that. Other times God in his providence, because as king he orders all things in the universe, I tell you something really practical. This is, I'm almost embarrassed to share this. You've been so kind. You're praying with us about Kristen's illness. I've got a set of challenges of faith right there that are going right now, but you know what hit yesterday? I think my dog has an ear infection. She's just restless. I'm trying to prepare. Put the finishing touches on the sermon last night. She comes down. She is, she's not lying down at my feet, like she does from time to time. She's walking in and out around my legs, around my desk, sitting there looking at me, and I would pat her on the head and rub her, you know, ears a little bit because I, I, I was already telling, but I'm like, I had to do the Lord's work. Doggy, go somewhere else. She will not leave me alone. Finally finish up, go upstairs. She never comes upstairs. Guess where she came about 9.45 last night? Comes in, stands at the bed, just looking at me. I know she's uncomfortable, I jump online. I look for emergency vet services. There's one up in Salt Lake City. Google Maps says it's 17 minutes away. It closes at midnight. I'm like, well, I can certainly be there before midnight, but God, really? Your word says the righteous man regards the life of his beast. I care about my puppy, but I don't have the capacity to heal my puppy right now. Would you take away this ear infection? God, you are a healer. She's not better. I load her in the car in the rain, drive up I 15. Exit, pull up to MedVet, parking lot's full. I'm like, it's 1025. Are there that many dogs in Salt Lake City that need emergency care? Yes. I go in, ladies kind, give me a second, handling other people. I'm like, I I can see that, sure, I wait. As I'm waiting, I look on the whiteboard behind her. It says, current wait, two to three hours. (sighs) she gets off her little phone call another doctor walks through and they talk a little bit and she says how may I help you my first question is I say is is that whiteboard message accurate like two to three hours she's like yes it is I turned and walked out I'm like Bristol I'm sorry you're gonna have to tough it out like I'm not staying here until 1 30 in the morning now some of you are like you are the world's worst (laughs) I I confess (laughs) I drive home Get out, Kristen's like, wow, you're back early. What? So I explained to her, jump online again, home remedies for doggy ear infections, and so I'm getting the apple cider vinegar out. And this morning I'm anointing her, not anointing her. I'm using, <laughs> I'm using olive oil, because that'll soothe the dog's ears apparently. Waiting, praying, like literally. I mean, I've I've spent a good deal of time since last night praying for the healing of my puppy, and I leave. I came to church before. Uh, Kristen left this morning. You didn't report that she was miraculously healed in the time I left. Like It's, it's, like, this, it's, it's like this background noise in my head and my heart today. I love my dog. She's a beautiful gift of the Lord. But the reality is I want her healed because that's my kingdom agenda today. Because And, and I can make it sound really spiritual, right? But the bottom line is I don't want my, my schedule and my comfort messed with. That's what's really going on. I'm operating last night seated on my throne until my dog starts walking around my feet. I'm like, hey, no, the king didn't authorize this. We live a good deal of life trying to sit on our throne, don't we? That's a fairly tame illustration, but part of our prayers for you this week as a pastoral team has been for some really hard situations that you're going through that you're going like, God, what gives? God, why don't you show up right now and and be the God you promised you would be? Why don't you do the thing I'm asking? Why don't you remedy my marriage? Why don't you bring conviction of sin on my child's heart? Why don't you heal this really serious illness? Why don't you provide the job, provide the finances? Why don't you, and and you fill in the blank, and, and the question, beloved, is are we doing that from our own throne? Or are we assuming a different posture? Because God's not waiting at your throne for you to authorize what he actually desires from us is this. Lord God, you are king. Let your will be done. Posture's important. I think there's a place for physical posture like that, but more than that, your soul. A husband king will never actually establish peace in his household until he bows before the one king. And a wife king who seeks her desires or her fulfillment or her comfort or her control will never know peace in her realm. No marriage can survive when spouses become their own kings. No family is going to find peace when children become king. Parents, it's hard, but hang in there you are one of God's primary tools for helping your kid realize they're not king. And the word no is a really good word for them to learn. It infiltrates the church. Pastor kings who are dictators, who want people to hop to it when they say whatever they say and sometimes even try to justify it as if I speak on behalf of God, touch not the Lord's anointed, it'll destroy the true church. Member kings who want church on their own terms have to have worship and children's ministry and Bible study and weekly schedules according to their own likings. Ministry kings who don't want to be accountable to anyone else, who want to be free to operate and initiate whatever they envision. That's the kind of living that's contradictory to let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is more than a rote prayer that God is giving us. And when you think in the personal terms like this uh, of how extraordinary it is that God would recruit us to his cause. First, because, I mean, we're not even submitted like we ought to be, but then he's saying, oh, by the way, I want you to pray in this way. Years ago, I took a class in apologetics, and one of the books we read was written by a, a powerhouse of an intellect, but a man who loved God, and the title of the book is Engaging God's World, it's written by Cornelius Plantinga, and I think these words are beautiful and appropriate. He notes in that book, we're praying for a miracle that people would stop rebelling against God's will and stop ignoring it and would conform their wills to God's. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are sworn foes, one centering in the glory of God and the triumph of grace, and the other centering in the glory of the creature and the triumph of His Autonomy. God performed that miracle and the apostle Paul moved him from being an angry, legalistic Pharisee, a blasphemer. Brought him into the realm of the son of his love, a different kingdom. Moved Paul from being all about establishing his own authority and credibility and righteousness on his terms. He was, he was at the center of his kingdom and God in grace moved him out of that and brought him into the kingdom of of the son of his love. And in Galatians 6.14, Paul writes, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world, his personal kingdom, we might say, has been crucified to me and I to the world. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Who is king of your world, functionally? God's king, he's just so exceedingly patient Slow to wrath and abundant in mercy as the scriptures tell us and you mistake his patience with you as if he's less than sovereign over your life. Oh, that, that's a fatal mistake if you live out all your days with that kind of self-deception. Is Jesus your king? And whose kingdom are you seeking? Will you bow before him? First of all, just turn away from all of your sin. Whether it be sins of self-righteousness, or sins of great immorality by the world's standards. Turn your back on it right now and turn to this great king who is a father. Say, God, have mercy on me, forgive me. And then would you bow before him? Get off of your throne and bow at his throne. He's not even asking you, hey, let me be seated on your throne. No, he's saying, come bow before mine. Will you do that? Will you live in that way? Brothers and sisters, some of you, are losing heart in your prayers right now. And I I get it. I've had some conversations with the Lord just this week, (laughs) the least of which was the one about my dog, but there have been some others. I'm like, Lord, what's the deal? We have prayed. Kristen and I have prayed. My brothers and sisters at Gospel Hope have prayed for salvation, for healing, for blessing, for direction, for correction. We, We, I mean, we've prayed for all kinds of things. And to this point, we haven't seen it This passage is intended to to reinforce your faith and grow it and strengthen it, to put fuel in your soul so you won't relent or give up. Not now. Can't at this moment. By God's grace, because we pray to a father who's king, press on, press on. Because a day is coming when we will no longer have the privilege of praying these prayers because faith will be sight. Hope will have become realized. You have one day less to pray than you did yesterday. And there are no tomorrows that actually are promised. Pray on, dear brother. Pray on, dear sister. The king sees. The king knows. The king moves. Father, seal this truth to our hearts. Humble us as we need to be humbled. Fuel and strengthen us as we need to be fueled and strengthened, but oh, with all our hearts we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.